Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alison Schachter about her book, Women Writing Jewish Modernity, 1919 to 1939, which came out at the end of 2021 with Northwestern University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alison, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Leah. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So Alison Schachter is Associate Professor of Jewish Studies, English, and Eastern European Studies, and the Chair of the Department of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. She specializes in modern Jewish literature and culture, with interests in modernism, transnationalism, diaspora, and gender studies. Her research focuses on how writers and artists responded to the historical transformations of the 19th and 20th centuries, including the rise of nationalism, the explosion of revolutionary movements, and the radical transformation of gender norms. Trained as a comparativist, her research encompasses Hebrew, Yiddish, English, and French literature. She is the author of Diasporic Modernisms, Hebrew and Yiddish Literature in the 20th Century, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. And she's the author of today's book, Women Writing Jewish Modernity. She's also the co-translator, along with Jordan Finken, of Fradel Stock from the Jewish Provinces, Selected Stories. And this came out also in 2021 with Northwestern University Press. So while your latest book is the subject of our discussion today, uh, before we, we get into that, I'd like to first ask you a little bit about yourself, um, your background, and, and what brought you to the field of Jewish studies and to literature more generally. Well, I never intended to study uh, Jewish literatures. I, when I was an undergraduate, I was going to be working in medicine, doing feminist health <laughs> healthcare. But I was really drawn to studying literature and literary texts, and it sort of swept me up in it. And as I was pursuing a BA in comparative literature, I started to read and study and think a little bit about Hebrew literature and got very absorbed in uh, in the, that work, um, more contemporary Hebrew writing. And that led me to spend a year in Israel on a Fulbright where I wanted to take a class taught in Hebrew and got sent to a class taught by Avram Novostern on Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And nobody from the Hebrew literature department <laughs> showed up. So he sort of ditched the Hebrew and told me I could read the Yiddish in translation. And the texts were just incredible, the modernist poetry that we were reading. So I started studying Yiddish and um, and then applied to graduate school in comparative literature, where I still thought that I was doing like 17th century French <laughs> classical theater, but I just kept getting drawn back into the Hebrew and Yiddish literature and became really fascinated by 19th and early 20th century Jewish writing in those languages because it was such a moment of uncertainty and flux about what would be the future of Jewish culture, what, how 
artists and writers and intellectuals conceptualize themselves, their relationships to nationalism, to other kinds of political movements. Um, and I was, I was, became absorbed in it and have been really ever since. Um, and so that's what I think has, you know, brought me to this moment and these projects. Well, that's really fa- fascinating that your interest in um, women's health also then transitioned into your interest in, in women's literature. Um, and uh, yeah, I was also wondering what um, what uh, in- sparked your interest in bringing Hebrew and Yiddish and French literature together. Was that something that um, has always been part of your work? This is in particular uh, a feature of this book, which I think we'll talk more also about how you bring um, Flaubert into your your work on on Hebrew and, and Yiddish modernism. Was it always a conversation between um, between different languages? I think so. I mean, I you know even in my bachelor's degree, I chose to do comparative literature instead of English, and I think I both have a really I love learning languages and traveling and thinking about writing in other languages. And that was something that I was always doing, reading literature and translation, um, even in high school. And as I began to study this moment, you know, it's so, it's such a contemporary idea to just have one language. So many of the writers that I um, were were reading and thinking about were all, all multilingual. And so I couldn't even capture begin to capture what they were doing in their work and how they experienced their lives without thinking about it in multiple languages. And some of the languages, you know, I studied a little bit of Russian, but I don't, you know, I can't read in Russian. You know, I don't necessarily have direct access to um, because for some writers, you know, it was five languages, not two or three, but it's definitely been a central feature. I mean, my first book, Diasporic Modernisms, was really also about Hebrew and Yiddish. And I think one of the interesting things about Jewish literary history is that it had historically has been very enmeshed in um, Jewish sort of political and national ideologies and awakenings. And so even though the history of the writers who were part of the what you might call the Hebrew Renaissance in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that get part of told in the story of the rise of Hebrew literature, those writers were also writing in Yiddish, and yet the literary histories had separated them. So you were a Yiddishist, and you were reading Abramovich in Yiddish, and a Hebraist, and you were reading in Hebrew. And so to bring those together and to challenge the nationalist norms of literary history that had been really dominant in the, you know, I mean, I think today that's kind of a given, but you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it really wasn't. There was a lot of tension around what were the boundaries of Hebrew literature, Israeli literature, Yiddish. And so telling the story of the way that these writers, you know, in that book and also in, in my current project, really conceptualize the relationship to language and to these competing ideologies of communal identities was really core to how I, how I approached multilingualism in my work. Yeah, and each of these authors you work with exists in a very um, multilingual space and had a very multilingual existence. Um, and and as you touched on, the idea of siloing these these literatures and these languages is definitely ideological always. Um, and something that I wanted to turn to in terms of the use and choice of language and and um, the sort of political and cultural weight that each linguistic choice holds. Um, was the issue of the sort of gendered dynamics of Jewish language. And that's something that also fascinates me in my own research. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to how um, the sort of gender dynamics of Jewish textual tradition and Jewish language informed your approach to these writers and how they work to shape uh, Jewish modernism. 
Yeah. So, you know, and I'll, I'll say when we think about siloing, one of the things that really th that led to this project was the realization that even though now um, Jewish and Hebrew and Yiddish literary histories were being looked at from a multilingual perspective, women writers were being siloed. So they weren't being brought into that conversation, especially women prose writers, which was, I think, something that was really important to me to achieve. But the, you know, the gender dynamics of of these languages is so complex because Hebrew was um, um, for Eastern European Jews, Hebrew was the high status language and it was the language of Jewish prayer. So it was formally the language that Jewish men were educated in so that they could pray and participate in textual study and in modes of Jewish religious life. And Yiddish was the Jewish vernacular. And although men and women were both writing and reading in Yiddish, it was the language associated with women. So it's not that all men actually had Hebrew literacy, but it was that was the ideal that men were supposed to kind of look towards. And it wasn't that there were women who didn't have Hebrew. And in fact, we know that there were, you know, you know, 19th century women who were being taught Hebrew. But um but it was the assumption was that the distinct that there was this important core gender distinction. And so women's prayer might be in Yiddish and men might read Jewish, you know, and women's texts or texts might be addressed to women in Yiddish, but men were, were reading them, too. So there was the ideal idealized narratives of these languages and the messy reality of them. Um, in the project for, you know, for both Hebrew and Yiddish writers, as they sought to imagine a literature that they conceived of as a sort of expression of Jewish national culture. And, and here I'm not talking about territorial nationalism, but sort of cultural nationalisms. Um, for Yiddish writers, it, it meant masculinizing Yiddish, for male Yiddish writers who were doing this project in particular, I should say. And for Hebrew writers, it actually meant the necessity of bringing women in because you couldn't have a national language if you had half, uh, like a whole community that couldn't read it and so to justify it as the language and so then there became very different gender dynamics that kind of shaped the way male writers wrote about and spoke about these languages and participated in these literary communities and of course women were also reading and writing in these languages and participating too and and they were doing it differently and I think that's what's really important to recognize um, that they actually had a different relationship to these questions of language and uh, to look more closely then at one of the authors um, you focus on in your work, um, Fredel Stock, you recently also translated some of her work last year and published um, some of her translations. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about what um, in particular sparked your interest in bringing her work um, uh, to, to a, a wider audience as well, but also in how she in particular engages with canonical authors of non-Jewish literature. Um, and this is sort of, uh, I think, uh, one of the first entry points we have into how these operate in a broader European literary conversation. Yeah, I mean, Stock is such an interesting story. And it kind of goes back when I think about my education in Jewish literary culture. I had somehow never realized that I was not taught any women prose writers in Yiddish. And so when I was working on this book, it was originally a book about secularism and gender. And it was all women Hebrew writers and male Yiddish writers. And I have a colleague that I exchange work with regularly. And she's like, where are the women? And I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't have a clear answer. I knew Rachel Korn. I knew a few other writers. And so I was reading around in this 1930s uh, Galician Yiddish journal called Sushter. And um, 
and I read a review by Rachel Auerbach of Fradlstock's uh, Yiddish Stories. And I had known of her as a poet. I, her name had kind of come across my attention in that way. And I had no idea she'd written a collection of stories. And the review was extraordinary. So I started reading the stories and they were amazing. They were really interesting modernist texts and they were engaging with so many of the questions and themes that were central to the book. So I, I thought, oh my goodness, I want to translate these stories. Like I, it's not enough to just write about them, but you know, part of part of the reason why I think I know so little or knew, knew so little anyway about Yiddish women writers is that translation in the American context played such a central role in crafting a canon of American Yiddish literature. And that begins, you know, with the translation, um, Saul Bellow's translation of Gimple the Fool and the Partisan Review. And, you know, both those two male writers went on to win the Nobel Prize, but the women prose writers really didn't gain any traction for translation. So, um, so I think that that's how I came across her. So I, I contacted a close friend, Jordan Finken, who had been doing a lot of translation work, and we decided to take that project on collaboratively um, as a way to think about changing our narratives of Jewish literary history and also just making the stories available to people so they could read them. But I think what's interesting about Stock as a writer is that she was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so different from some of the other writers who were born in the Russian Empire. And her cultural contexts were German um, and French literature. I mean, also, she was certainly probably aware of Russian literature as well. And as I was reading her stories, it was really clear to me in particular her story of Friedrich Schiller, that she was in dialogue with Flaubert. Um, and she's not the only, uh, David Bergelson is another Yiddish writer who's, who's writing in this kind of interesting critical dialogue. And that became really interesting to me because one of my Hebrew writers, Devorah Baron, was the first Hebrew translator of Flaubert's Madame Bovary. So both those women writers were taking this male-authored 19th century French novel, and which both was a novel that in many ways, I would say, demeaned its female protagonist, but also brought to our attention this really compelling female protagonist um, with a, some, you know, with some derision. And exploring Emma and the questions around Emma Bovary about consumption, about desire, about the limits on women, and trying to think about them from a really different feminist perspective as a way to understand themselves as artists and writers. Um, so that Flaubert became this interesting touch point. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that Karl Marx's daughter, um, Eleanor Marx, also translated Flaubert and was also thinking about Flaubert from this feminist Marxist perspective. So he spoke to these women writers um, and they, and they, in their translations, in a way, they all speak back to him. And you mentioned Dvorah Baron also returning to Madame Bovary. So what is, you know, how does her um, perspective on and, and her turn to Flaubert differ from, from that of Stock and, and how does she offer a sort of subversive translation in particular uh, with this yeah. engagement? So, I mean, in some ways, they're, they're, they have a similar relationship, although I would say that Stock is really exploring, they're both interested in the ways in which women's desires, women's experiences are restricted in the tr sort of traditional space of the shtetl and exploring that, but from kind of different perspectives for Baron, for, for Stock, the erotic experience is just more something she's interested in. And for Baron, I think it's more the sort of abusive relations of power, actually, or they, the ways that they express themselves in the domestic space. But her translation of Flaubert is really interesting because what she does, um, 
she really plays around with um, Flaubert's ironic voice. And she doesn't, she allows Emma in her translations by making subtle changes to have a greater interior, a greater interior expression. So that whereas Flaubert sometimes describes Emma as almost lacking in a form of interiority. In Burroughs, we see Emma's interior world, her feelings exist, and she's able to express them. So with really subtle changes, she gives us an Emma who has substance, who has an interior life. And, and in doing that, she's showing us how women are thwarted, like how they have aesthetic possibilities that aren't in which they aren't allowed to give voice to. Um, so I think it's it's an amazing translation for that. And that's funny because <laughs> the review of the translation, which I write about, um, the reviewer says, you know, oh, she doesn't really have the stamina to do this translation. And he gets really involved in the nitty gritty of how she translates this, this term potest of the sea, which is ash water. And he completely misses what's really radical about her translation because he's so absorbed in his own linguistic authority as somebody that knows French better than her. Um, but she was doing something, I think, you know, interesting to me because I think she was creating her own practice of a form of feminist translation um, that was in her moment radical. And uh, you talk also then about, you know, the idea that about um, proficiency in a language. And that also then becomes a, a topic in, especially in the second part of the book, um, where you engage with authors who, who worked most actively in a language that was not their first. Um, so the, the first half of the book focusing on the sort of subversive space of prose and the second half has a focus on sort of the types of communities created through this modernist writing. And I was interested in hearing, so a bit more about what the particular significance was of authors like Leah Goldberg and Elie Shavobichowski and, and Deborah Fogel writing a language that, that wasn't their first language. It, it made me think of a lot of these like sort of thorny issues of the mother tongue or, or quote unquote native proficiency um, and sort of what people living across national boundaries confront when they adopt a new language. So I would, I would be curious to hear more about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really interesting um, it was something that I hadn't planned and then re- kind of came to this realization of the, that for Goldberg, Bichowski, and Vogel, they really were talking about explicit language choice. I think sometimes we talk about language choice and people really don't have a choice. You know, they don't have another language. This is their language and for a variety of reasons. But for each of them, choosing a language, so for Goldberg, um, you know, she learns Hebrew later. She's growing up in a, you know, German and Yiddish milieu and Russian, a Russian context. And for, you know, Bichovsky is fascinating as a non-Jewish woman who became interested in Hebrew and Yiddish and then saw the language as a kind of way to reproduce modernist modes of estrangement and so this the, and marginalization and so the idea of writing in these marginal languages for her beca- became a way for her to express a kind of cosmopolitan modernist aesthetic and for Vogel I think it's also interesting that she chooses Yiddish because you know she grows up in this very Zionist and Hebraist context and she has Polish and it's actually Auerbach, Rachel Auerbach, the, the woman, um, the writer that reviewed Stock, who convinces her to choose Yiddish. And she embraces it, I think, as a tool of imagining, as a space to imagine 
the multiplicity of Jewish languages. Like she, she's choosing a language not her own, but one that's rooted. I mean, she was really interested also in um, this sort of multi-ethnic space of Galicia. And so I think it was a way, it was the sort of Jewish language of that space um, in dialogue with Polish and Ukrainian artists. So for all of them, it was part of their creative expression. It was a way for them to imagine new modes and forms of belonging. Um, you know, Bichowski actually, her relatives had arrived in Russia from Ireland. And so she really identified with the kind of Zionist project as connected to the Irish uh, liberation movement. And I think that was also like a really, it was a way for her to think about her own place in in Russian culture, actually. So anyway, for all for all of them, it was different, but it was about just it was also about disconnecting themselves from the language of their families, which I also think is interesting that they wanted to push off in new directions, and it was part of a, it was part of their I think project of imagining themselves as self made artists too, and independent artists and writers. And you also spoke of, of the the difference in geographic and thus national, social, political contexts of these authors. So, for example, working both in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the former Austro-Hungarian Empire and in the Russian Empire, which then became the Soviet Union. So what are some of the, the differences that these these two contexts offer these authors? Um, you know, I mean, one of the striking things I've been creating a map <laughs> for the book and I mean, it's important that the interwar period, um, which is the context for this moment, is a moment when all of these empires are collapsing. So central for each of these writers is that they're born in these imperial contexts that are multi-ethnic and multilingual, and they and then these these empires fall apart, and what and and new nation states are created that are monolingual, and so. Um, I think that ends up being really a, a kind of key experience for all of them. And, you know, the Austro, of course, for the Austro-Hungarian context, the idea of the Habsburg Empire, the idea of German culture, the idea of multi-ethnic, a kind of idealized multi-ethnic space, which I think is how in some spaces the Austro-Hungarian Empire has been remembered and it's being reclaimed that way. It was really central. And in the Russian imperial context, it's certainly different. Um, I think for Baron, um, you know, leaving that empire was really, leaving Russia was really important and that Russia was, was a kind of unsafe space for Jews, that she was fleeing. Uh, ultimately, I think, you know, um, political and political violence that's unfolding and pogroms and, and whatnot. And so, you know, there are different spaces, but, but it's the reorganization in the interwar period. It's the sort of emergence of the Polish minority treaty or the emergence of new modes of minority rights that are coming out of the Soviet Union and the creation of the mandate system, which produces another possibility of Jewish territorial nationalism that I think is very becomes defining features of how all these writers, like if they're born in these imperial contexts, they don't end up in them. You know, even Vogel, who's the one writer who stays in Europe, ends up in the, you know, in the interwar Republic of Poland. Um, and really, she mourns the Habsburg Empire. She often refers to the town that she lived in, which would, would have been Lvov as Lemberg, which was, you know, its name under that imperial context. 
And this uh, sort of multi multinational um, and multi multicultural context also relates to the the different ways in which these women sought mobility, whether it be culturally, linguistically, politically, um, but also in terms of their education and their sort of literary cultural affiliations. So, for example, Leah Goldberg and I believe De- Deborah Fogel also had, had PhDs, correct? Um, I was interested in hearing also about how how they were able to both make space in these sorts of institutions um, and um, a- attempt to achieve this sort of social intellectual mobility, but how they were also limited in their attempts to do so. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's really two generations of women writers that I'm writing about. And Goldberg and um, Vogel are born, uh, they're they're born later. And so they gain access to the possibility of forms of university education that were just not available earlier. In the Russian Empire, women were not allowed to attend university. Um, Goldberg, you know, studies in Germany and Vogel studies in Germany. in Poland and gaining that access, I think, to university educations, arriving at this later moment when this is, you know, a real possibility opens up important intellectual vistas for both of those women who go on to write not only prose and poetry, but also essays, which I think distinguishes them um, and become important literary and cultural critics, each in their own context. At the same time, their, their lives are also there are ways in which their literary and intellectual careers are shaped by being women. Um, for you know, for um, Goldberg, it's interesting because she really resists that. In her interviews, she'll say she'll you know reject this title of herself as a woman writer or speaking about it. But in her prose fiction, she's really explicitly writing about the the um, the difficulties that women face in seeking forms of intellectual and artistic life. And that is especially in the novel I wrote about in my first book, Luhuha Or, and that is the light. And I think for Vogel, you know, she, you know, it's interesting on, on the eve of the Nazi invasion of Poland, she's writing a letter to a Yiddish poet and editor in New York talking about, you know, the greatest impediment to my success as a writer is being a woman, you know, it's the, uh, it's the unfortunate of being a woman and not being Jewish or writing in a minority language or being, you know, trapped in a, you know, at a state of imminent um, political and mili- you know, disaster. I mean, I think she understood what the Nazi invasion would mean, but it was, she under she saw her inability to earn a living as a writer, like that it was difficult for her to, and also the ways, especially I think for her, and this is different from Goldberg, that critics really didn't take her avant-garde work as seriously as they might have if she had been a male writer. And when you read the criticism of it, where there, you know, there's this one reviewer who's <clears throat> who's so demeaning of her. He's like, you know, there's nothing new. There's nothing new on the prose front in Yiddish. I mean, there's this backward stuff that Vogel is doing, but really, it's just you know, imitative of cubism. And it's so, I mean, it's such a strange statement because she's doing something nobody's doing in Yiddish, but it's just imitative. Um, Whereas, you know, male writers 
avant-garde experimentations were embraced as central and important and intellectual. And the other thing, you know, it's, oh, she's not writing about the Jewish question, but of course she is writing about those, those questions, but she's seeing, you know, the aesthetics as political and none of that's visible because she's a woman writer and because the expectations for women writers were different. And for Goldberg, I'll also add that, you know, Goldberg was a multifaceted writer and intellectual and she, her novels and her prose are, I think are, you know, absolutely important modernist works, but it's really only recently that they've been even, you know, looked at in that way. And so the recept while she was celebrated as a poet, although even then after her death, I think for a long time she disappeared as a central figure and it was her children's stories that people were celebrated. You know, ultimately I think her prose wasn't read because prose was considered a male genre and it was an authoritative genre of a certain kind of national cultural expression. And women weren't supposed to have that kind of cultural authority. And so it was hard for critics and writers to, I mean, her books are not, I mean, it's shocking how little attention the novel gets, that Vuhuha Or, uh, the, one, the novel I write about, she, she never publishes, which I think is also interesting. So this issue of these authors sort of structurally not receiving the attention they deserved and perhaps not achieving the the commercial success of their um, male colleagues and contemporaries makes me also think about the practical challenges of of this entire research project. So I'd be interested in hearing more about how you found these works and achieved this this breadth of material for the research project. What was the the archival work involved? Um, That's a great question. And I I think it's a really interesting one because for each of the writers, it was different. for uh, Leah Goldberg, there's been a lot of archival uh, recapturing of her um, corpus that's um, been done. So a lot of archival stuff has been actually um, published, her letters, her diaries. Uh, Gidon Tikotsky has done a lot of work um, kind of reviving her. And in addition, I'd spent some time in the archives looking at her material when I was working on my first book. So, um, and I had that those materials for Devorah Barone. Also, there's not, there's, there's not a, the archive there is, is, I would say a little bit thinner, but there's a lot of material and a lot written about her that I could turn to and look at and think about, even when it, some of it really didn't take her works as seriously as I would have liked. Um, what's interesting and I think important for Dora Vogel, because the archive the archive of Yiddish literature for women is very thin. And we, you know, we don't really know much about so many of the women writers, but there's been a project to re- assess Devorah Vogel's work. And I'll say that Anna Maya Misiak has per- published a really extraordinary volume that has not only all of Vogel's publications, both in the Yiddish and Polish, but also um, her correspondence. And so it's this like amazing portable archive. And Anastasia Lugas has just translated in, uh, that material into English, which is also an incredible resource. I didn't have those English translations when I was working on the book. And I worked with a Polish research assistant who um, was able to get and translate some of the Polish material for me because I don't read Polish. But for um, Bichowski, I was able to, you know, gain access to her archives in Israel to find really interesting materials, including a letter that she wrote to the British High Commissioner to be considered a refugee in 1947 because she was so ostracized by the Hebrew literary community that she felt like she no longer had any connection to to the to the land and the people. 
for stock, it was the biggest challenge because there was really no, there was no clear archive for her. There's no um, archival materials at Evo or elsewhere. And um, what I ended up doing was searching with the suggestion of a historian friend of mine where I was just trying to find out where she lived in um, New York was going to ancestry.com and finding documents that, you know, no one had really been able to look for or had, you know, considered in part just because, you know, the digitization of these kinds of archives is really a newer phenomenon. And that was fascinating because I uncovered a lot of information about her more than I thought I would have, like not only where she lived, but that she had been married and divorced, that she was hospitalized at Rockland State Psychiatric Institute and likely died really late and alone in 1990. And that was, it was, it was kind of, I mean, it was, it was shocking actually to find some of that information and I, I really wanted to see if I could find her psychiatric records. Um, and I tried to, to make connections with family members. Um, I was able to find people who were related to her, but it didn't, they didn't end up requesting the records. And so, you know, we'll never know if after her institutionalization, um, if she continued to write, but I think the story that I pieced together of her life and is already really interesting and provocative. And a, one of the details that was the most you know, fun to discover is that in her naturalization papers, there's a woman who signs the papers um, named Jenny Bedrick. And I came to realize uh, Yankov Gladstein has this long essay on um, Stock where he writes about her, but he doesn't use her name to protect her identity, which is crazy. And he mentions Jenny Bedrick actually as a source for that information. And then I, you know, I came to discover that she, she was living with another woman from the same town that she grew up in, in New York after her divorce. And that that woman was also an aspiring Yiddish writer. And it opened up this question of the idea that there were these women writers create, trying to create community for themselves. Some of them we know about, but so many of them we don't. And that I think was just a hint of the possibilities of what might be uncovered through greater archival research. Oh, wow. That is, that's quite the, um, the trail that you had to follow um, for Stock. Fascinating. I wanted to also return to Bikovsky. Um, she was a, a new, a new author for me. Um, and, and her biography was also uh, peculiar that, that she'd come from, from Ireland um, and, and then gone on to, to Palestine. So I was interested in, in hearing a bit more about her writing and in particular, her use of the motif of Jewish and non-Jewish relationships, which also comes up more frequently in the book. I was particularly interested in, in how she utilizes this as a sort of key space for imagining a Jewish future and, and new social practices. Yeah, I, so she was, so her family, part of her family emigrated to Russia from Ireland, but she was born in Russia. And... Um, you know, I think it's really interesting. I, I wanted to jump back to something about language for a second to say that for her and for maybe the other writers, I think they, in a way there was this prosthetic feature of language for them, that it was this, it was something they could hold onto and they could attach themselves to, commu to forms of community. But, you know, her, I think her writing is interesting. Her, she was celebrated as a poet and in her poetry, she doesn't talk about the kinds of issues and questions that come up in her prose. It's so different. Um, and the prose, she's really interested in thinking about intimate relationships between Jews and non-Jews, um, 
romantic relationships as a way to conceptualize her own project of self-transformation. And that that's not uncommon. I, you know, I was just teaching Anza Yazerska's Salome in the Tenements, and there's, you know, this idea that the romantic, that romance is, I think, an interesting aesthetic tool to think about the intimacy of the political sphere, that the that the set of political questions enter into our private worlds in very intimate ways, and so by envisioning them intimately, it allows it allows for a kind of private conceptualization of these larger political questions. Um, you know, she, in that, I think what's interesting in, um, in that novel, Sinta Ode Alleyways, is that for her, you know, she's has, there's this figure of this Russian woman who wants to learn Hebrew, but doesn't. And I think that's important because she succeeds. And for whom the project of learning Hebrew and thinking of Hebrew as a way to push forward her poetry and also to to get beyond the limits of what's happening in uh, Russian in the Russian poetic scene which she describes as kind of like weighed down by 1920s Soviet nap era um, you know she ultimately leaves in the, the the protagonist in the novel ultimately leaves Russia and goes to France and leaves behind Hebrew and it's an absolutely failed project and for the he, the male Hebrew writer left behind he also abandons Hebrew so for her it's sort of like her predicting the failure of her own um, her own gesture because ultimately she'll also turn her back on Hebrew in a way at that end and that letter you know written in English which is really fascinating to me. Um, but it is this moment when people are seeing language, the, the you know, it's, when she's writing this novel, it's this moment when, you know, it's also like the moment for Esperanto and all these other impulses of internationalism and a belief in a kind of international transnational community of writers and intellectuals. And, and for her, you know, Hebrew was that language. It was going to be that. And it didn't turn out for her it didn't turn out the way she hoped, but her novel kind of imagines its failures through the, I think through the romantic and intimate, the failures of the romantic and intimate relationships in the novel. And that's really interesting. I really uh, appreciated your use of the term prosthetic, the sort of prosthetic nature of language for these authors. And, and this also speaks to the sort of multiple allegiances or the sort of straddling of worlds that we see in particular with Deborah Fogel. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how she she operated within these different wor- worlds of uh, speaking Polish and Yiddish and Hebrew, and then how she was able to be a pathbreaker aesthetically and in her social critique, even though it wasn't always so so well received. You know, it's interesting. So she's publishing simultaneously works in Polish and in Yiddish, and in her letters, she actually expresses a really deep frustration that only it's only sort of Polish writers, some of whom are also Jewish who appreciate what she's doing, who get her avant-garde aesthetics and that the Yiddish literary community, especially where she's living is so conservative. So she wants to make her mark in Yiddish, but 
she's uh, and she feels like she's unable to do it that it's only the polish audience and so she transferred the the um prose montage works that i write about she writes them first and publishes them first in yiddish and immediately publishes them in polish so there's a pragmatic element to her operation in both languages in that she's able to publish and earn more money from writing in polish but at the same time she's really interested i think in bridging these intellectual and literary and cultural communities she's part of of a group of artists and writers, um, the Artez group, who are committed to multi-ethnic um, Polish, Yiddish, and uh, Ukrainian uh, project. That's the kind of holdover from the Habsburg Empire. And she's also, you know, frustrated by some political transformations. So, for instance, you know, all of a sudden the leftist Polish papers don't want to publish anything about Yiddish or Jews, because suddenly, you know, in that's nationalist and Zionist, and that's out. And so those avenues are foreclosed. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of shifts and political transformations that open and close various publication venues for her. There's her own commitment to kind of idealized multi-ethnic literary and cultural space. And, um, and then there's her own project of aesthetic experimentation. And I think she's writing these montage uh, these prose montage works, they're difficult to read. She's invested in an aesthetics of boredom, which makes them even harder. But she's also trying to re-envision a, a democratic mode of writing that can encompass multiple perspectives, including women, including ethnic minorities. And so, you know, she's doing something really radical and political, and she's doing it in Yiddish and in Polish. And so, there's, I think there is a practical reason she moves between languages, but for her, it is also ultimately an aesthetic, aesthetic and political question. And in terms of the, the path breaking of these, these authors, you also then turn at the end of your book to Jewish American literature. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how these, these authors created the groundwork or laid the groundwork for, for Jewish American literature. And in particular, you look at the author Grace Paley. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted, in concluding the book, I was drawn to thinking about Grace Paley because in many ways, I think she um, is one of the figures who takes up the feminist modernist aesthetic that I identify. And I think that's, you know, if I were to say, one of the things that I really wanted the book to do was to show, you know, when we're looking at these women writers together and we're not siloing them by language or nation state, that we actually see they're all doing something that's that's modernist and feminist and that that had been invisible to uh, Jewish cultural critics. But Paley, in a way, is taking up a lot of the challenges that they're engaging in. She's writing about women in the domestic space, and in American letters, that wasn't something that was happening in the, you know, in, you know, in the '50s when she's writing. Um, certainly, Afri there are, you know, really interesting African American women writers who are also doing, in some ways, uh, related projects. But she's also challenging. Pro, like she's embracing prose, but she's experimenting with modes of representation, re representing interior life. And also with the very restrictions that prose imposes on women. And so for instance, I know she has this 
brilliant. I think it's, it's this story that I write about conversation with my father, where she talks about how she doesn't want to, you know, she wants to offer all her characters like the open destiny of life. She doesn't want fate and narrative convention to restrict how we see women because for her, and I think for all of these women, the aesthetic and the everyday are not distinct from each other. So prose is acting in the social world. And when we have these narratives about women's fates and they abound, they also restrict women's fates, right? Not just in the stories, but in real life. And so they, I think, Haley, like the other women writers, really believed that prose was a transformative genre that could inter that could participate. You know, it was it, it was itself social, and so she, in her own writing, and taking up women's voice, um, and taking up modes of gossip, gossip as a form of storytelling, and and women's spaces, she's doing something very similar. Um, and she disavow. I think she kind of. You know, she offers in an in interview, she has really interesting feminist critiques of what she, I don't think she uses the term boys club <laughs> exactly, but she's kind of thinking about the sort of boys club of writers. And it's really interesting to note that 1959, when her first collection comes out, it's the same year that Philip Roth's collection comes out and that they're reviewed together. And Philip Roth will go on to have this like startling career. And Paley too, I think is, you know, a certainly a recognized writer, but she'll never be, or has never been, I think, within the Jewish American literary canon, you know, Roth is is the determining figure, and Paley is still the siloed woman, you know, women's writer. And part of, you know, my impetus in this book is to say, you know, it's not enough to just recover. It's important. Don't get me wrong. Recovery is a, is a, is a central project, but it's not enough to, you know, once we recover these women writers, we have to, in order to make their voices heard, we have to rethink the narratives of literary and cultural history through their voices. And so in, I think for me, it was, a, it was a gesture to say, hey, you know, what I'm saying about the, how we understand Jewish cultural modernity in an earlier period, um, how we've understood it only through men's voices and experiences and aesthetics, that's the same for the post-war moment in the U.S. I, I think it's a, it's a similar problem. And so... Paley really offered me an avenue to do that. And she's just amazing. I love her. So I really just wanted to be, to be writing about her. Yeah. And so in situating this larger modernist project uh, into a larger literary conversation, and also for an English speaking audience, I was wondering to hear about your experience in teaching these texts. Have you, have you taught some of these texts uh, in translation that you discuss in the book? Have you, have you taught Grace Paley? Yes, I've, I taught um, a couple of years ago, I taught for the first time at Vanderbilt a course on intro to Yiddish literature. And it was really, it was great because it was an opportunity to teach some of the newer translations of women's writing. Um, I taught a draft version of Jessica Kurzine's translation of Miriam Karpalov's novel, um, <clears throat> Diary of a Lonely Girl. And I was able, I taught, I actually taught <laughs> uh, selections uh, that had been published by Anastasia Lubis of the Vogel. And I brought in a few stock stories as well that I had been working on. And it was really amazing to teach Yiddish literature and have all these women's voices in, in, um, in the classroom. Because, you know, for now, for a generation of students, Yiddish literature, it's not, it won't just be the fathers and the grandfathers. You know, there's a, a narrative where we 
think about, you know, <clears throat> Abramovich is the grandfather of Yiddish literature, and then there's Peretz and Shalmalech and the son and the grandson, and the, this very paternal line. But actually, now you can teach, you know, Yiddish literature and prose literature and have all of these women's voices, and 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 that's new. Um, my students love Grace Paley, and I teach her in a class on Jewish storytelling. And this semester, I'm teaching Jewish storytelling, and that class is six short story Jewish short story collections. Um, and I've been teaching the stock stories as a collection, which has been really interesting. My students to see how my students resonate with it and how how they read so well as modernist works. So there's something about teaching them that it changes how I understand them. And we're about to hit Paley, but um, I think Paley is, you know, in the classroom, students her stories at first seem so conversational, and then it's really exciting to get students to see also how they're so difficult and how they're challenging and continuing to challenge this distinction we make between art and life in really interesting ways. Wow. I would love to take one of your classes. And that's, that's really exciting for, you know, students new to Yiddish literature who might be tabula rasa to um, sort of arrive at a, at a different narrative of the, the legacy of Yiddish literature and into a new group of authors. Well, um, this brings me then to my last question, which is um, not related to this book, but sort of looking forward. What are you working on next? So I think this book um, sort of prompted me to become interested in thinking about the post-war, Cold War era and the women intellectuals who are thinking about and theorizing that historical moment. I was teaching a graduate seminar on literature in dark times. And I, I when I was teaching this you know, class about, you know, that, that basically a class that looked at sort of totalitarianism and Nazism and its legacy in literature, I realized I was mostly turning to male theorists and that, of course, like alarm bells went off in my head. And the project has, emer has kind of morphed and I'm looking at um, a, a set of different writers writing in the Cold War period, thinking about the political questions of the kind of McCarthyism, uh, the, total, the sort of legacy of totalitarianism and Nazism. And so right now I'm actually writing about Lorraine Hansberry, who's a really interesting figure, um, whose work is very much in dialogue with um, some of the Jewish women writers that I'll also be writing about, including Grace Paley and Tilly Olson. And Hansberry, too, is like all these other women are thinking about the everyday as a political space, are thinking about um, the domestic space in political terms. And I'm interested in the wages for housework movement also. Um, and the women sort of who are begin that project of um, of that. And so Selma James, CLR James's wife, for instance, um, has a really important manifesto. So, and then women, I'm also interested in thinking about women like Rachel Auerbach and Leah Goldberg who emigrate um, in the post-war period and are also asking important questions about what is what happens to minority identity in the context of the creation of a new state and how do we understand that in, in relationship to the legacies of Nazism. So it's really a Cold War project about women intellectuals, but it's been fun and exciting to really, you know, dive deep into Lorraine Hansberry, who's such an extraordinary intellectual, um, you know, a queer radical Marxist thinker whose, you know, work hasn't, I mean, there's some amazing new work about her. I think Amani Perry and Sarah Diggs-Kolberg have done incredible um, research to bring her, the complexity of her writing to the fore. Um, and it's, 
and writing in her play, um, The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window, which is actually about a Jewish intellectual who uh, Sidney and his relationship to these, his, this, these sisters and his wife, et cetera. But it's a book that it's a, sorry, it's a play that really is asking questions about this post-war moment and the legacy of Nazism for intellectual life in the U.S. and for women's feminist activism. Wow, that sounds fascinating, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing your research now in a in a new historical period. Um, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about your latest book and your upcoming research. And uh, I want to wish you a wonderful day, and I hope to see you again on the podcast. Thanks so much, Leah. This was really fun to have this conversation, and I hope to see you in person soon <laughs> at some point. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Bye.